Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 1. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you, and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it, and build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and pace it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face towards it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face towards the siege of Jerusalem, with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you, so that you cannot turn from one side to the other till you have completed the days of your siege. And you, take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food that you eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. From day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hin, from day to day you shall drink. And you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I drive them. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. And I will do this, that they may lack bread and water, and look at one another in dismay, 
and rot away because of their punishment. And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. And a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these again, you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there, a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules, and have not even acted according to the rules of the nation that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And because of all your abominations, I do Do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and the sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely Because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and will be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you, and a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will unsheath the sword after them. Thus shall my anger spend itself and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. And they shall know know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolate desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you and in the sight of all who pass by. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in anger 
and fury with, fu- with furious rubrics. I am the Lord, I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I send to destroy you, and when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Amen. Said last week, and I'll say it again this week, Ezekiel is a weird, weird book. It's a difficult, difficult book in the Old Testament to get our heads around. Um, and especially the the subject matter of what we are going to look at this evening. You may have come in, you may be new to church for the first time tonight, and you get the service sheet and you open it up and you see that the, the title of the sermon is When God Shoots to Destroy. It's not the most inviting title, is it? It's a very difficult subject matter that we are going to look at tonight. And one of the, the truths of the Bible is that, that God is a God who judges. That he is a God who gets angry at, at sin and at evil and injustice. And we really need to get our heads around that, not just to understand Ezekiel, but to understand the good news of the gospel. Because you cannot understand the good news of Jesus Christ without understanding the very sobering reality of God's judgment. And tonight's passage is hard, but we need to wrestle with this and listen to what God says, not what I have to say, because it's what God says that matters. So in order to understand this, we need to understand the context. Um, It's really helpful if you weren't here last week, maybe to listen to the sermon from last week online. It really sets up the book of Ezekiel. There's also an article in the church magazine, which is free. You can get in the foyer uh, explaining the kind of outline structure of Ezekiel, which I think you'll find um, helpful. But we saw last week that the book of Ezekiel is really all about one thing, the movement of God's glory. So Ezekiel is written around 600 years before Jesus Christ. And at that time, God's people, the nation of Israel, they believed that that God's glory, his presence was confined to one place on earth, the temple in Jerusalem, God's holy city. But in 597 BC, Jerusalem was invaded by the mighty Babylonian empire. They stormed the city and they took most of its residents off as prisoners to Babylon. And one of the guys they took off was a young man who was in his 30s training to be a priest in the temple whose name was Ezekiel. Now, when the Babylonians originally came to Jerusalem in 597, they didn't destroy the city. They invaded it, but they didn't destroy it. uh, And the temple was still left standing. So everyone at this time thought God's glory, his presence with his people, is still there in Jerusalem, and he won't abandon him, abandon them. But God speaks to Ezekiel to tell him to tell Israel that that is exactly what he is going to do. He wants his people to be clear that it is God that has waged war on his people, not Babylon. It's God who is judging them. It's God who is going to destroy them. Jerusalem is going to be leveled to the ground and the temple will become nothing but a pile of rubble. 
And God himself will leave. And he is the one who is behind all of it. And what we'll see over the next few weeks as we look at these opening chapters of Ezekiel is the shocking things that Israel had done to warrant such a severe and extreme response from God. Now, tonight in chapters 4 and 5, we're going to see what, what judgment God is bringing upon this, his chosen people. And here's what I, here, here's the two things I hope that we'll get from looking at these chapters tonight. Firstly, as we look at this, we need to use passages like this in the Bible to help us take God's judgment more seriously. You have to realize that as dreadful as this is, Ezekiel chapter 4 and 5 is just a foretaste. Jesus himself promised, and you can, whenever you read through the Gospels, he talks about it a lot. He promised that at the end of time, there is going to be a judgment for all humanity. And that judgment is infinitely more terrifying than what we see here in these chapters. It's God's eternal judgment. But when some of us hear things like that, we, we might not believe it or we might hear it and we might view it as being irrelevant. It doesn't really affect me. Do you know that uh, later on in Ezekiel chapter 33, we're told that, that when the people heard Ezekiel's message of judgment in these chapters, do you know how they responded? They thought, oh, it's very entertaining. And I'm sure it probably was quite entertaining. But it's not for us. It's not for us. And God's saying, it is for you. You're not listening. It reminds me, um, I've been listening to a lot of Johnny Cash recently. Um, I was listening to a song by Johnny Cash. I think it's in, in his last album called God's Gonna Cut You Down. Don't know if you've heard that song. But what's striking about the song is the music video for it. it on YouTube, it has over 53 million views. Uh, and it's a vid. In the video, it's a bunch of A-list celebrities from Kanye West to Jay-Z to Justin Timberlake all singing these words. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God will cut you down. It's a sobering song. And yet I wonder how many of the, the celebrities on that video or the people who have viewed that video view it as real. Or just entertainment. It's just a song. It won't affect me. But we need to take this more seriously. Because Jesus does make it clear we will all be judged. And don't get me wrong. We'll see this later. That, that as a Christian it's possible in the face of judgment to have absolute confidence and security because of what Jesus has done. But those who really do trust him are those who take his judgment seriously. How great would the cross be? And how motivated we would be for evangelism if we took his judgment seriously. And the second thing that I hope we, we get from tonight is this, that we will take not just God's judgment seriously, but we'll start to take God seriously. So let's not, please, please let's not think as we have read a passage like this, ah, this is just God of the Old Testament. 
This is what he's like. Look, we don't, we don't have prophets today like Ezekiel because Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, he is the, the clearest and ultimate revelation of who God is. That's how God speaks to us. But Jesus doesn't diminish any of God's attributes in the Old Testament. Jesus is like a magnifying glass over God's attributes. He increases them greatly. And as I said, Jesus' depiction of God's judgment is infinitely more terrifying than anything we see in Ezekiel. And I do not use the term infinitely lightly. Jesus talks a lot about hell. He really does. So let's use this passage to to shape and to stretch our understanding of of who he is. I said that last week that one of the big problems we face today is that that we've kind of tamed God a little bit to, to make him more palatable to our cultural sensitivities. And Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, just rips to pieces the the domesticated God that pervades much of Western religion and brings us face to face with the real God who is dangerous. He's good, but he is dangerous. He's not tame. And we'll see his goodness in his judgment tonight. We will. But let's look at this passage. Let's dive in. I've got two points on your, on your service sheet that you should have got as you came in uh, that will help us as we navigate through them. Firstly, we're going to look at four signs of God's judgment that bring a severe warning to the people of Ezekiel's day and to us. And then secondly, we'll conclude by looking at the one sign of God's judgment that brings us a sure and certain hope. Firstly then, the four signs of God's judgment that bring severe warnings. Now, as we look at this, we've got to ask ourselves, Why? Why is God angry in this passage? Why is he angry with his people, his chosen people? And there are many reasons that we'll see throughout Ezekiel, but have a look at verse 5 to 9 of chapter 5 in our passage. This is what God says, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem, I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her, and she has rebelled against my rules. By doing wickedness more than any nation and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you. And have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules. And have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, even I, I'm against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. Now, you have to understand, Israel, Israel is not just any old nation. Jerusalem is not just any old city. These were people chosen specifically by God. And do you know why they were chosen by God? So that they could be a light to the nations, so that, so that they could show the world the greatness and the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. And so God gave them rules to live by so that they could show the world what it was like to live in accordance with the Creator. And yet for almost all of their history, Israel did nothing but spit in the goodness of God's face. Yes, there was some faithful few that we read of in the Bible. But for the most part, this was a nation that kept ignoring him, that wouldn't listen to him, that kept rebelling against him, and they really did some of the most horrible things you could imagine. In fact, they're worse than the nations 
the, the nation that's meant to be a light to the nation gets the first prize in wickedness. And they all presumed they would escape God's judgment. Why? Because they're God's chosen people. They're Israel. They, they thought, well, God won't let Jerusalem fall. They presumed that they knew how God should act despite what he had told them. And here's the danger for us today. When we don't listen to God's warning, when we don't take his judgment seriously, we presume we'll be okay. We presume maybe, hey, I've lived a good life. If there is going to be any judgment, if God is going to send anyone to heaven or hell, I should be all right because I'm basically a good person. I'm sure most of you tonight are. But Jesus says that's not enough. That we're all naturally rebels against God. We don't follow his rules. We don't listen to him. We ignore him. But even worse than that, and even more subtle than that, we might presume upon a religious identity. I've been to church. I've prayed. I've read the Bible. I grew up in a Christian home. And this passage is an especially sobering warning to those who are in the church of Jesus, but they're not listening to Jesus. That's the key thing that they weren't doing. They're not listening. And actually, Jesus says that, that there is a harsher judgment for people who should know better, for people who have heard his word. He says in Matthew 11 that it would be more bearable for a pagan nation like Sodom on the day of judgment than for people who have heard but have rejected him. So when a church or when a mainline denomination willfully chooses to disobey God's word, we must speak out against that. Not out of some self-righteous smugness or, or, or some false sense of superiority, but out of fear for them. To reject, God, to reject God's word is to reject God and then to face his judgment. And just as God staked his reputation on Israel back in Ezekiel's time, God stakes his reputation today upon his church. It's not good to tarnish that. And maybe individually, not just corporately, maybe individually, we need to ask, are we refusing to give up that one part of our life to what God's word says? You've heard it again and again and again. But you're rebelling, whether it be in a specific area or just a flat refusal to trust Jesus. The church has to be distinct from the world. And the way that the church is distinct from the world is through obedience to the word of God. If we're not listening, this passage is a warning to us. But the good news is that this God does warn. That this is not what he wants. And so he warns his people so that they will not face this. Now in Ezekiel, so far the people, we saw this last week, the people have been refusing to listen to, to God's warnings to what God has been saying to them. So God tries to warn them a different way. He gets Ezekiel to perform um, Four very odd signs. It's kind of like he gets Ezekiel to perform like street theater. So if they're not going to listen to words, maybe they'll listen to actions. Maybe they'll, they'll listen to these, these four signs of judgment. I was really tempted to uh, have props tonight in the sermon, uh, and, um, but I don't have the facial hair for the last sign, so I couldn't have done it. Um, but these are the four signs we see here. Look at this for alliteration. Four signs. The brick, the bed, the bread, and the barber. Robin told me that that was rubbish, but uh, I beg to differ. So, 
think it's great. Firstly then, let's, let's look at Ezekiel's first sign, the brick. Verse 1 to 3. Ezekiel's called to take a brick and to draw a picture of the city of Jerusalem on it. I'm guessing probably Jerusalem had a very prominent skyline uh, with the temple mount in the middle and the the temple on top. So he probably drew like a a profile picture of the city. You can imagine how Edinburgh would look with the hill running up to the castle. And he draws it on what would have been quite a large brick. And as he does so, people start to gather around because people didn't think Ezekiel was weird back in the day. They knew he was a prophet. They were thinking, well, what's Ezekiel doing? Then Ezekiel starts making little models, little models of siege towers and ramps and battering rams. And he starts positioning them around this, this clay picture that he has drawn of Jerusalem. And then he goes and he grabs his wife's frying pan And he stands over this model that he's just built. And I imagine at this point that some of the exiles here, some of these prisoners who'd been carted off to Babylon, they would have known exactly what this model was. They were there the first time Babylon invaded Jerusalem. They were taken away. I imagine maybe they watched this and they thought that as Ezekiel picks up this large iron frying pan, he's going to smash apart all the armies. And he's going to say to them, this is what the Lord will do to your enemies. And they would all cheer but he doesn't. He stands in front of this model and he takes this iron pan, verse 3, and he just puts it in front of his face as he stares at Jerusalem. A powerful symbol that God no longer looks with favor upon his city. That there is an iron barrier between God and his people. That is what sin does. That is what sin and rebellion against God's word does. It creates an impassable barrier. And unless his wrath is removed, that barrier will be there until eventually we are cast away from God completely for all eternity. It's the first sign. Secondly, we see the bed in verses 4 to 8. Ezekiel, look at what he has to do. Verse 4. God says to him, lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of days that you lie in it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. Now, if you walked by Ezekiel's little model, as they went to whatever it was they were doing each day in Babylon by the Chabar Canal where Ezekiel is, as the exiles walked by, they would have seen Ezekiel lying in front of this model on his left side. And we're told in verse 8 that he was bound up with cords. And every day they would walk past, they would see Ezekiel lying there, facing this model. Day 1, day 2, day 3, day 40, day 72, day 100, day 250, day 300. For 390 days, Ezekiel is lying on his left side, bound by cords, looking at Jerusalem. And all of this, God says, is to symbolize the length of time that that Israel has sinned against God. Each day represents a year. For 390 years, Israel had rebelled against God. And as Ezekiel lies bound on one side and in pain, it would have been agony lying there. It's a powerful reminder of the, the pain that Israel had caused God. See, here's the thing about God's anger. 
he does not fly off the handle. His anger is, is never just off the cuff. And we struggle with this idea of, of God being angry because we often, perhaps maybe foolishly, think God is just like me. And often our anger is not pure and holy and good. Our anger is quite selfish. But God's anger is not. He is patient. As Exodus 33 says, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is 390 years slow. 390 years of of constant warning, of, of constant pleading. 390 years in which God has been speaking to Israel through his prophets, telling them not to go this way, trying to care for them, this people whom he loved, whom he rescued. 390 years. I don't know if you've ever felt the pain of rejected love. It's one of the worst things to feel that. Well, for 390 years, God felt the pain of rejected love from a people who couldn't care less about him. Bound to a people that didn't care about him. That's what sin is like against God. It's a personal rejection. If you're not listening to him, that's what it's like. And then after 390 days, Ezekiel is told by God to to turn now onto his right side and for 40 days to lie with his arm outstretched, prophesying against Jerusalem. The 40 days, probably symbolic of of the, the 40 years that they will spend in exile. Just a small little glimmer of hope. Not much. There will be an end to this, this exile. We are reminded of the words of Jesus who tells us that he is coming back to judge the world. That is going to happen. As sure as Jerusalem fell, Jesus will judge the world. But why is he taking so long? Here's why. 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord Jesus is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He is not slow. He will do it. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why has Jesus not come back? Because he wants people to repent and be saved. And some of you have been coming to this church for a long time and you have been hearing time and time again that you need to turn to Jesus to be saved and you've not done it. And the reason Jesus hasn't come to judge you is because he's waiting for you to respond. But judgment will come just as sure as it came on Jerusalem. Third sign that we see Ezekiel having to to perform for the exiles is the sign of the bread in in verses 9 to 17. So during this time as he is lying on his side in pain, he is to make bread from meager rations of wheat and barley, beans and lentil, millet and emmer. I have no idea what millet and emmer is, Um, but if it's anything like beans and lentil, it probably won't be that nice. And the amount for this is given in verses 10 and 11. That amount that God gives him is not enough to live on. Not for that amount of time. He would be starving slowly and eventually he would die from this. Why is he doing this? Why is he making bread out of beans and lentil? Because that's the kind of food you eat when you're under siege. And Jerusalem is about to be placed under siege And it's going to be more terrifying than the first time when Ezekiel was there. And over these 390 days, Ezekiel himself, as he 
was eating this. I don't know if he just ate this or if it was just part of the, the performance for the people, but his appearance would have probably slowly deteriorated, just as you would in, in a siege situation. Look at verse 17, actually. God says, I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. His deterioration is symbolic of the horror of sin and judgment. Sin really, sin really is that bad. And maybe the reason that we don't take God's judgment seriously is because we don't take sin seriously. Make no mistake, everyone here is probably very nice and polite, but the truth is we are really messed up sinners. If you could see my heart, if you could see it, unclean would be a fitting word to describe what I'm like. And just to make matters worse for poor Ezekiel, God tells him he has to cook his food over human dung. Ezekiel's been through a lot here trying to convey this. And even for him at this point, it's too much. Because Ezekiel, it's not just the fact that it would have been disgusting, which it would have been, but Ezekiel is one of the few good godly people left and he doesn't want to eat ceremonially unclean food because he doesn't want to go against God's word. And so God says, okay, well, you can use cow dung. Thank you very much. And all of this conveys the, the uncleanness the severity, the poison of what sin is. Not listening to God really is that detestable. Fourth sign, the barber. Should technically be the barber's razor, but it wouldn't have fit my points. So the barber we see in verses one to four of chapter uh, five. Ezekiel then is asked after this to, to take a sword. Now imagine in your heads what Ezekiel would have looked like. Probably in my head, I think he would have looked like one of these people that that maybe had spent time in in a concentration camp, very deteriorated in his appearance because of his diet. Um, But he would have had long hair and a long beard. That was because he was a priest, and we're told in Leviticus 25 that that priests were not allowed to shave um, or to use a razor to their head. But now God says to him, take a sword, and I want you to start shaving that beard off with your sword. And I want you to start shaving and cutting your head with that sword. Ezekiel, cutting off his hair, cutting off his beard, is a powerful symbol, a powerful picture of the end of God's priesthood. You see, a priest in the Old Testament was to represent God to the people. And Israel herself, she was to be the priest to the nations, to show the nations what God is like. But she had misrepresented him, so God cuts it all apart. When we don't live in accordance with God's word, we misrepresent him. And in some ways, that's one of the worst things that we can do. If we know Jesus, we're to live like we know Jesus. Jesus says to, to those who know much, much will be required. The privilege of knowing the gospel carries with it the great responsibility of living out the gospel. And now the priestly status of Israel has been desecrated. And then Ezekiel, once he has shaved all his his beard and his hair off, he gathers all the clumps of it and he, he puts it onto scales and he weighs it into thirds. And as the people, the exiles, gather around to watch what Ezekiel's going to do next, he takes one third and he places it in the middle of his little model of Jerusalem and he sets it on fire. 
And then he takes another third and he, he places it outside the, the model of Jerusalem. And he takes that sword that he used to cut it and he starts whacking it and whacking it and whacking it. It's cut to pieces. And then he takes another third and, and he throws it in the air as it's scattered out to the wind. Because God's judgment will come on his people. People in the city will be burned through fires. They will be judged. The people outside the city will face the judgment of the sword. And the rest will be scattered off to the ends of the earth. And he even takes a little few hairs and, and he tucks them into his robe. And maybe the exiles thought, oh, that's us. Because we're not in Jerusalem. And just to make matters worse, verse 5, he takes those few hairs and he casts them into the fire of Jerusalem. See, this is all dreadful. Fire, sword, casting out. It's God's judgment. The whole passage ends. Pestilence and blood will pass through you, says God. And I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. When God says it, it will happen. And it did. 586 BC, five years after Ezekiel did all this. And it was worse than anything else they'd experienced. And just as God's word came true then, so will his promise of judgment at the end of time come true. People ignore and rebel and will have to give an account. And let me tell you, Jesus' description of hell is worse than anything you see in chapter 5. You don't mess with this God. Don't ignore him. And when he shoots to destroy, it is terrible. So, what hope then is there for a world that is in rebellion against God? It's what the Bible says that we all are. We need our final point here. Judgment is not the last word in Ezekiel. Never. In fact, read through this book and read the last third of this book. It is amazing. Confusing in parts, but amazing. This is not easy, though. This is not a passage of the Bible I would pick to preach on. Because it is difficult, but it is true. God, God does get angry. And you might think, well, I don't like to think of, of God being angry. I like to think of, of God being loving. But what we think is irrelevant. God does, does not have to abide by our rules as if, as if somehow we have the moral high ground. We should dictate to him how he should operate. He is God. And what we often don't understand is this, that, that if God is to be loving... And if he is to be good, he has to be angry. He has to be. God's anger is his goodness responding to evil. The alternative to an angry God is an immoral one. How wicked would he be if he did nothing about the evil and injustice that we see in this world? But despite that, and that evil and injustice comes from the human heart, despite that, God does not want to punish us. God is not some 2D character. He's infinitely more complex a character than us. He, he's not just angry. His anger is slow and it's, it's filled with hurt and with pain and never absent from his goodness and love. He takes no pleasure in this. This is what he says later in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 33. 
when the people say, that the faithful remnant who are caught up in this, when they say to God, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we will rot away because of them. How then can we live? God says to Ezekiel, say this to them. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? There is a way out, but it's not through us. It's not through us trying to be better. It's only through turning back to him. That's what he wants. There is no refuge from God, only in God. Turn back. And the latter half of of the book of Ezekiel is just full of these amazing promises of, of restoration, of new birth, of God dwelling with humanity. But how does he do that? How does God remove and punish the sin in our lives without removing and punishing us? That is exactly the conundrum that Jesus Christ came to solve. We all deserve God's eternal judgment, but Jesus removes that from us. How? By his death on the cross. That's how. The cross, that is another sign of judgment that God gives to a world in rebellion against him. But this is different, this sign. Because this is not a judgment on us. This is a judgment on the Son of God. Because at the cross, Jesus, as he dies, steps into our place. Jesus, as he dies, takes our punishment. Jesus takes our judgment upon himself. And you see, passages like Ezekiel 4 and 5, they remind us of the unimaginable torment that Jesus suffered to free us from judgment. See, on the cross, Jesus was separated from God so that we could be brought in. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, he was forsaken in our place so that we would never have to be, so that that iron barrier between us and God would be removed forever. On the cross, Jesus takes all that is wrong and unclean and filthy and detestable in my life. And he becomes it. He becomes my sin. And God punishes him for my sin so that I could have his righteousness so that I could be clean and be whole for all eternity. On the cross, it was Jesus who suffered the fire of God's anger. It was Jesus who experienced the sword of his judgment. It was Jesus who was cast away from his presence as he was led outside the city walls of Jerusalem to be crucified. And he went through it all, and he endured it all, and he drank the cup of God's wrath to save us so that we would no longer be objects of wrath, but beloved children of God. Do you see, when you start to take God's judgment seriously, it's only then that you can take God's love seriously. There is hope in Jesus. If you come back to God through Jesus Christ, he forgives all sins, and we will live. Why will you die, says God, when you can live? Follow him. And listen to him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak and you do warn. This is difficult. It's really hard to get our heads around the the severity of the judgment that we see here in Ezekiel. And it's even harder 
to get our heads around the severity of eternal judgment which Jesus promised will come to those who are not following him. And yet it's real. Please help us to take it seriously. Please help us to take you seriously. Not to try and diminish or defend your anger. Help us to let you be God. And yet, Lord, amidst the dark backdrop of judgment, we do have hope as Christians. Real, lasting, eternal hope. Father, we can say with confidence that there is no condemnation for us because Jesus has taken all that condemnation on himself. But help us to see the cost that what he had to endure so that we could say that with confidence. Thank you that judgment is not the final word for those who follow Christ, but that salvation and grace and being in your glory for all eternity is what he has achieved for us. May we never tire of listening to and obeying his word. May we not presume upon you, but may we seek to love you by obeying you and following you. Give us the power to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.